0: The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.
1: Welcome to Positive Living, the program that brings you practical and inspiring principles for living more authentic, engaging, and passionate lives. Created by Patricia Raskin, a catalyst for positive change. All comments, views, and opinions expressed on this program are solely those of the host, guests, and callers. Now, with Positive Living, here's Patricia Raskin. Well, good morning, everyone on the West Coast, and good afternoon,
2: everyone on the East Coast. Positive Living. I'm Patricia Raskin right here on voiceamerica.com I'm Voice. It's always an honor and pleasure to be with you each week on Voice America. I've been doing this program on Voice America for about, I think I'm in my eighth year. I started on the internet when it was really in, in its infancy and Voice America was one of the first. They probably had uh, 20 shows. Now there were about 250 or 300 shows. And my work has grown in terms of sharing with the public, positive living. And through television and radio, over 25 years, I have always been an independent producer saying to stations and networks, look, we need this material. And now it's commonplace. Now people really want to hear this. They want to be inspired, particularly in difficult times. And I have a wonderful guest who speaks to this topic exactly. Do you ever hear people say, who are a little bit older, Gee, if I had the wisdom that I have now when I was 20, wouldn't that be great? If I knew what I knew now then, well, I have a guest who's written a book on that. My guest is Tina Selig, and her book is What I Wish I Knew When I Was 20, a crash course on making your place in the world. Tina Selig has a Ph.D. in neuroscience from the Stanford School of Medicine and is the executive director of the Stanford Technology Ventures Program, which is the Entrepreneurship Center at Stanford University School of Engineering. In addition, Tina Seelig teaches courses on entrepreneurship and innovation in the Department of Management Science and Engineering. She speaks and runs workshops um, really all over the country. And her book, again, is What I Wish I Knew When I Was 20. Welcome, Tina. Thank you very much. Yeah. And want to tell people that if you'd like to call us today on Voice America and you're listening between 2 and 3 p.m. Eastern and 11 and noon a.m. Pacific, call us at 866-472-5788. Okay, why did you decide to write this book?
3: Okay, great question. Uh, it actually started out uh, not as a book. It started out as a list. Uh, that four years ago, my son turned 16, and I all of a sudden panicked. I realized, I looked over the horizon and saw he was going to be going off to college in a couple years and realized that although he had learned all these really important things at school, you know, history and science and biology, uh, he really didn't know the things that I felt were really important to make yourself successful in the world. So I opened up a Word document and started making a list of the things I wish I knew when I was his age, when I was going off to college, when I was starting my own life outside of my parents' home. And uh, I ended up, ended up being given an opportunity to give a talk at Stanford, where I work, uh, to a group of students who are finishing a business leadership program. And I decided to use the list I put together for my kid as uh, inspiration for that talk. And it turns out, it really resonated well with them. And I got asked to give this talk again and again and again in lots of different
2: places. And eventually, HarperCollins asked me to turn it into a book. So it became a course from, from a, a concept to it from a discussion and then a concept and then a course and then a book. Exactly. Yes, isn't that great? We could all do that. So why did you come up with the title?
3: Well, uh, you know, it's just the first thing that jumped into my mind, you know, what I wish I knew when I was 20. When I was at that point, when I was getting out of that place, you know when you're in school, there are lots of right answers. There are right answers to the tests. You know, No one ever uh, criticized you for going to Stanford or Harvard or Yale or getting a job at IBM. Um, but when you really get out of school, all of a sudden the world opens up. You have the ultimate open book exam. There are no right answers. And you are left with a lot of opportunities to experiment and a lot of students feel very stressed. In fact, it's interesting, um, I have been asked to give a lot of guest lectures at the end of the year to graduating students at Stanford. And at the end of the class, I said, you know, my book is all about turning problems into opportunities.
2: That's what my and show I, is all about. That's the tag tagline about my of my show, How to Turn Obstacles into world. Opportunities. Excuse me? That's the tagline of this program, How to Turn Obstacles into Opportunities. Well, perfect.
3: So we're, we're, we're speaking the same language. And essentially, I said to them, what are your problems? And initially, when I did it in the first class, I was met with, you know, with silence. And I realized they were more embarrassed than it was, than that they didn't have any problems. So I said, you know what, why don't you just write them down on a piece of paper anonymously and pass them to, to the front of the room. They instantly grabbed a piece of paper and they wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote and they gave them these to me. And these are all graduating students from Stanford. And the issues they're dealing with are the issues that everyone is not quite knowing what they're going to do, how, especially in these challenging times, how they're going to essentially find their place in the world. Mm. And so publicly we went about, you know, going about trying to look at all of the problems they had that ranged from everything, you know, I need to find a job to I want to
2: lose 10 pounds.
3: Mm. So uh, it was very interesting.
2: So this wisdom then, is this wisdom specifically for that age group Told really from an older, wiser perspective, or could this be used for anybody? It's for anybody. I mean, it, the the
3: title—what I wish I knew when I was twenty—is you know, hopefully clever and gets you to pick it up. But I have gotten lots and lots of letters from people, even into their sixties and seventies, who have said, "Oh my gosh, I need to know this now."
2: Mm-hmm. And you know what? Let's talk about um, opportunities. You talk about in your book about—you say that opportunities are abundant. But I would have people listen to this saying, oh, I don't know if they are. I'm either older or the job market's on a freeze or every time I want to apply for something, it, it, it's already taken or they're not hiring. What do you say to that? Well, well,
3: let me give a little story because, of course, we can talk in these very grand terms as long as we want. But if we don't get down to some basics and give some examples, exactly. it's hard to realize how relevant it is. Um, I start out the book with an exercise that I do in my class. And it started out a few years ago, I gave the students envelopes, teams of students an envelope, and in each envelope was $5. And they were told they could spend as much time as they wanted over the course of a week planning. But as soon as they opened up that envelope and took out the $5, they had two hours to make as much money as possible. Mm. And you'd think, okay, what can you do with $5? And initially they thought, well, this is not much. What can I do with this? But the things they did were truly remarkable. Now some students did the things that were pretty typical, you know, start a lemonade stand or a car wash and try to, you know, use the five dollars to, to buy the starting materials and then, you know, make some more money off of the, the profits. But the teams that made the most money realized that the five dollars was actually a limitation. And what they looked around and saw that there were opportunities everywhere. For example, one team realized that there are all of these bicycles on campus. And of course, any college campus you go to, you'll see there are tons of bicycles. So they set up a stand in the middle of campus with a bike tire pressure gauge and a pump and said, we will measure your bike tire pressure for free. But if you need air, pay us a dollar. To pump them up.
2: Mm.
3: At first they thought they were taking advantage of their classmates because they could go around the corner to the gas station. But they realized they were in a place that was incredibly convenient and everyone needed air. And in fact, halfway through the two hours, they changed their strategy. They decided Mm. instead of asking for a dollar, that they would ask for donations instead. Mm. And their profits soared. And they realized they should never walk around thinking they have no money in their pockets because all they had is needed was a tire gauge and a pump. And they so went out there and were able to make $200 and in just a couple of hours.
2: What you're saying is all they did was change the way they said the word from a fixed price to donations, and it changed everything.
3: Right. And even they looked just at the world through different lenses, all of a sudden they broadened their scope they could see the opportunities in their midst that they didn't even see before. Now, here's the thing. There were 14 teams, and the teams did lots and lots of amazing things, but the team that made the most money did something that was truly remarkable. Mm-hmm. They realized that it wasn't the $5 and it wasn't the two hours that was their most valuable asset. They realized the most valuable thing they had was the three-minute presentation time in class when they were going to tell people about what they had done the prior week. Mm. And they sold that to a company that wanted to recruit those students. So they sold it as advertising time for
2: $650. How
3: clever. Pretty amazing. And that is the point, is that the world is rich with opportunities, but we need to reframe the way we look at things so that we actually see them.
2: Mm. So really what you're talking about here is creative thinking, thinking out of the box, working together as a team to come up with ideas and realizing that you don't have to think in the standard way of, gee, the nine-to-five job, the resume. I mean, that works, but there are other ways to make this happen.
3: Absolutely. And I... This is not easy. It takes a lot of practice. It takes a lot of practice to get used to viewing problems as opportunities. And I, in the course I teach on creativity and innovation, I start out giving my students small problems and over the course of the quarter, the problems get more and more challenging until by the end, they're incredibly comfortable taking on problems. And I ask them at the end of the course to write an essay about what they learned from this, and it's really quite mind-blowing how their entire attitude towards their life way outside of the scope of the classroom has completely changed.
2: Amazing. So, but part of that goes into your next piece, which is attitude, because you can't create these opportunities if you don't have a positive attitude.
3: Absolutely. And in fact, I spend a lot of time in my book talking about how do you make your own luck? You know, we always hear, oh, the harder you work, the luckier you get. And I certainly believe that. I mean, this is something I grew up with my very wise father telling me all the time. But you realize there's so many other things that you can do that um, make your own luck. There, Lucky people do a bunch of things that actually keep ratcheting up their luck. And so other people from the outside look in and go, oh, my gosh, you're so lucky, and you realize they weren't lucky at all. They put themselves in a position to be lucky.
2: And, and the other thing that you talked about is how you really do have to think out of the box because we're used to really thinking in traditional modes. And often I think what happens is money gets in the way, meaning that, you know, people are saying, well, how can I be creative and think about this? What if it doesn't work? It's not tried and true. But if I get that job from nine to five, that will pay my bills. Right. I mean, what do you say to that? Well,
3: you know what? We obviously want to be able to survive in a comfortable way and pay our bills. And there are a lot of people who have jobs and that's you know, that's
2: the way that they um, survive in this world. But there are so many all right, other creative times we're gonna take a break and when we come back we're gonna talk more to Tina Stilly all about creating opportunities. But I wish I knew when I was twenty six when you're listening to Possible Living, I'll be right back. Mm-hmm.
1: The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Hi, everyone.
2: You are listening to Positive Living right here on Voice America, America's Voice Positive living is all about turning your obstacles into opportunities and your problems into solutions and making your dreams come true, and today is no exception. I have on the consummate guest who's talking just about that. My guest is Tina Seelig. Her book is What I Wish I Knew When I Was 20, A Crash Course on Making Your Place in the World. Tina Seelig has a Ph.D. in Neuroscience in the Stanford School of Medicine, and is the Executive Director of the Stanford Technology Ventures Program, which is the Entrepreneurship Center at Stanford University School of Engineering. In addition, she teaches courses on entrepreneurship and innovation and has written several popular science books for adults and children. And, Atino, welcome back. How can people find out about your book? What's the website?
3: Uh, you know what? You can get it in lots of different places. You can go to Amazon. You can go to HarperCollins. You can just Google what I wish I knew when I was 20, and it will be really easy to find.
2: All right. Do you have a website, a personal website? Yeah, I
3: have a blog. Uh, my blog is Creativity Rules, spelled with a Z, R-U-L-Z, creativityrules.blogspot.com. And anyone can also follow me on Twitter, which is uh, just at TC League.
2: Okay, creativityrules.com.
3: Yeah, dot .blogspot.com.
2: Okay. All righty. You were talking more about how we make our own luck.
3: Yeah. It's really important to realize that you make yourself lucky. You know, lucky people are those people who go through the world fully engaged. They are looking at opportunities. They meet new people everywhere. They are smiling. They are engaged, as opposed to walking through life with their head down in the same rut day after day. In fact, I give myself a little assignment, and uh, I encourage all those who are listening to do this, too, to try to meet someone new every day. Now, this is particularly easy to do when you're traveling, and I travel quite a bit. Um, I always go up and end up talking to somebody, whether it's someone sitting next to me on an airplane, whether it's someone in the grocery store, someone in the elevator. You just start a conversation, and you never know where it's going to go. In fact, let me tell you a quick, can I tell you a quick uh, little story? So um, a few years ago, I was at the grocery store, and this uh, man came up to me, and he uh, wanted to know how to make lemonade. He had a can of lemonade, and he was from obviously not from this country, and uh, didn't know how you you know mix the water with the lemonade to um, to turn it into something you could actually drink. So I explained it to him, and that for any most people would be the end of the conversation. But I decided to ask him a few more questions, and I said, "Boy, hey, I don't recognize your accent. Where are you from? turns out he was from Chile. And we ended up um, talking for a few minutes while we were in line in the grocery store, and uh, I asked him what he was doing here, and he said he was in Silicon Valley to learn about entrepreneurship and innovation. And I said, oh, how terrific. That's what I teach at Stanford, and I gave him my card. We ended up communicating on and off over the next couple of years when he was in the area, and... Uh, I helped him out whenever I could. Turned out, a couple of years later, I was in Chile for a conference, and I sent Mm. him a message, and I said, you know, hi there. I'm in Chile now. Will you want to meet for a cup of coffee? Now, Of course, you realize I just met him in the grocery store a couple years earlier, right? He said, that would be terrific. So, But as the time came up, he ended up getting really busy, and he said, gosh, I can't make it, but go to this building in the center of town, and I've got a treat for you. Bring a couple of your colleagues. I brought some of my colleagues went to the building. I was met by one of his colleagues. We were taken to the roof of the building and taken up in his family's private helicopter Uh, for a tour of the city up to his family's ski resort uh, and then back down. Now, this all came about because I talked to someone at the grocery store. It happens all the time. I mean, these sort of things. You never know where the conversation will take you. Now, of course, over the two years, I was helpful to him. I engaged with him. I did whatever I could. And that's the other thing. If you put yourself out there and do things for other people, it comes back to you a hundredfold. And so I love to say, you know, most people think about turning problems and opportunities, about turning lemons into lemonade. Mm. But really being entrepreneurial innovative is about turning well, made the story. and helicopter.
2: I mean, the story is one of those dream stories. And as you said, you're not looking for that. You're just putting your out there, yourself out there in a positive way all the time. Yes, exactly. And that's all part of it. So now let's talk about success and failure. Let me give you an example. You know, for many people, it's great when they try entrepreneurial things or they try new things. It's great when you succeed. Then you did it. What happens when you're trying and you're trying and you're trying this thing and that thing? You love what you're doing. You're on the right track and it's not succeeding or it's not going in the way you want it to. And then instead of turning that into an opportunity, you get into what did I do wrong? I was too risky. I shouldn't have done it. Now, of course, if they'd won, it would be a different story. What do you think?
3: Well, you know what? I have many colleagues who believe and many very successful entrepreneurs and venture capitalists who believe that if you're not failing sometime, you're not taking enough risks. Mm-hmm. And that is a really important concept. If you aren't willing to fail sometimes, then um, how are you ever going to have your big successes? In fact, it's pretty clear that the ratio between your successes and your failures are pretty constant. So if you want to have more successes, you're going to have more failures. And, in fact, I have my students write failure resumes. They have to write their biggest screw-ups, personal, professional, and academic. And the idea is if you can learn from those failures, that's what's really important. You don't just write down, I failed, I messed this up. You go, okay, I messed it up, and next time I'm going to do this differently. And that is really, really important. Mm.
2: So, and, and, and then what that also teaches you, Tina, is not to be afraid of failure. Exactly. Or you're no. teaching it that it's part of the process.
3: Exactly. it's certainly nobody wants to fail. You don't start a company. You don't start a relationship. You don't start a business, you know, thinking or hoping that you're going to fail. But when you do fail, to figure out what did you learn from it, what did you get from it, and to use the ashes to build something really wonderful mm. and do and different. All
2: right. You talk in your book about What is success? What is success?
3: Well, you know, success is really different for different people, and I think that's really important to keep in mind. Um, Oftentimes, we go through life when we're growing up, and our parents have a pretty good idea about what they think is success for us. And um, I remember, you know, I have lots and lots of students who come from families that have had very high expectations for them. And uh, sometimes they come to me and they're very upset because they want to go and do something and their parents or their relatives or their friends have other expectations for them in mind. And I say it is terrific to have someone else giving you feedback that they think you should do something different because it allows you to test the strength of your own convictions. If everyone's always telling you, you should do this and you should do this, and you follow directions all the time, you never get a chance to see how strong your own convictions are. Mm -hmm. And uh, being able to argue on your own behalf, to rational, justify, and um, build an argument for why what you want to do is the right thing for you.
2: What about those difficult decisions? How do you handle those?
3: Well, they're difficult decisions all the time. And I think, you know, one of the things I talk about in the book is the fact that you sort of think when you're growing up that you will at some point get to a place where uh, you will feel completely settled. And for all of us who are over 20, over 30, over 40, we know that's not the case. We always are facing new obstacles, always new challenges, always new uncertainty, and we should embrace that. That instead of hoping and waiting for everything to get settled, we should look at that uncertainty as an engine that propels us forward as opposed to something that just causes angst and anxiety.
2: You know, it's interesting because as you speak, really what you're saying is there's there's no failure. I mean, certainly there's failure, but it's just a way to learn and to grow. I mean, that's really what you're talking about. But it's how do you tame those voices, Tina? You know, those voices that have been conditioned that are telling us things like you shouldn't have done that, you shouldn't have, you should have been smarter, you shouldn't have been stupid. I mean, those are inner voices that will often sabotage us, and it happens to a lot of us.
3: You know, it's interesting. It's one of the big cultural differences around the world is people's um, comfort um, with failure. And if you look in the places of the world that are more entrepreneurial, that have a lot more innovation, those are the places that also embrace and are um, comfortable with failure.
2: Would you say fact, our culture is one of them? What's that? Would you say our culture is one of them?
3: Definitely, especially on the West Coast and in Silicon Valley. Uh, it's one of the things uh, I talk about in the book is the fact that failure is the secret sauce of Silicon Valley. If you look at the number of you know, venture capitalists who invest in new startups, only a fraction of them are successful. So you could say they're really investing in failures because the bulk of their investments don't pay off. But the ones that do pay off, pay off really big. And they're willing also to take these failures and to sort of plow them back into the soil, you know, like compost, and use it as uh, fertilizer for the next venture and the next
2: and the next.
3: Hmm.
2: Fascinating. What was your favorite chapter in the book?
3: Oh, ah, that is hard. It's like picking what's your favorite child. Um, I think, oh boy, there's so many of them. Uh, let, let's talk about towards the end of the book. I talk about the concept of never missing an opportunity to be fabulous.
2: I just was reading that, yes.
3: And, uh, you know, this came out of my class as well. Um, at the first day of class, I tell the students, I promise I'm going to do my very, very best, and I expect the same from them. And the last thing I say is, you know, never miss an opportunity to be fabulous. And I say it only once. But when I found is that this concept is incredibly sticky, and students keep repeating it again and again and again. And in fact, you know, they come to class and they've got like the back of their iPod is engraved with never miss an opportunity to be fabulous. They, this is something they want to hear all the time. And I think the reason for this is that so much of life and so much of school is about doing just enough to get an A or to pass,
2: mm-hmm. just
3: enough. But when you get into the real world outside of school – Would you want everyone to do that, to do just enough? Those people who really take the cap off, do their very best, deliver the best they can, are the ones who really and truly accomplish amazing things.
2: And I've talked to, um, in fact, I talked to Gene Bedell, who wrote a book called The Millionaire in the Mirror, and he talked about that. He said it's not enough to be the best. It's how, how do you hone your skills so that you're doing what you love, you love what you do, you found the right market for it, and, and, it's, and, and, you've, and you've become an expert in a certain stream that's growing.
3: You know, let me, let me build on that. Um, I talk about, the, in my book, about the fact that the goal is to find the intersection between your skills, your interests, and the market. And people often are told that they should follow their passions. Well, that's all well and good, but if you're passionate about something you're not good at and there's no market for it, you're just going to be frustrated. And you can have that as a hobby. That would be a terrific hobby. But um, if you can't find that place, then you're really going to be very, very frustrated. And uh, the other thing is even when you're managing a company or managing a team, one of the things I, I love to tell people is that you should paint the target around the arrow. You pick someone who is a really sharp target in one area and then find the job that fits them perfectly. Mm-hmm.
2: And uh, and But you have to really know those skills, and that's where it's important to hone your skills, correct? Exactly.
3: And it's interesting because as you go through your career, one of the things I love to think about is every job you have is like putting another bead on a chain. Each one is really different. Each one gives you a very different opportunity. No two chains are the same. Mm-hmm. None, none of the same. So if I look at your career path and my career path, they're going to be quite different. But if you look at it in retrospect, when you look at the whole thing over time, it ends up being a fascinating and fabulous pattern where every single thing you've done has contributed something else to, all, to the whole experience. Mm-hmm.
2: Absolutely. All right. We're going to take a break. I have a tremendous guest, Lisa Tina Seelig. What I Wish I Knew When I Was 20 is the title of her book, A crash course on making your place in the world. Incredible book, incredible work. You're listening to Positive Living. And I'm Patricia Raskin. You can call us after the break live or listen to the podcast at 866-472-5787. I'm Patricia Raskin. Stay tuned. We'll be right back.
4: Do you know that over 70% of Americans with severe disabilities are unemployed? Are you one of the 2.5 million Americans with epilepsy? If you are or know someone struggling with these issues, tune in to Disability Matters with Joyce Bender. On the show, Joyce will discuss these issues as well as others. She will have a nationally known guest that will offer helpful insight on disability matters and let you, the listener, call in with your questions and concerns. So if you struggle with a disability or know someone who does, listen to Disability Matters with Joyce Bender. Heard every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific time here on voiceamerica.com. I can take care of myself. I can make a peanut butter sandwich. I can brush my teeth and I can give myself a bath. I can walk home alone from school.
0: and pundit Michael DeMarco. You don't know what's coming next. The biggest radio show in the world on Voice America.
1: The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com.
2: You are listening to Positive Living, and I'm Patricia Raskin, right here on VoiceAmerica.com. This is a program that shows you how to turn your obstacles into opportunities and your problems into solutions and how to make your dreams come true. My guest today is Tina Selig. Her book is What I Wish I Knew When I Was 20. Tina Selig has a Ph.D. in neuroscience from the Stanford University School of Medicine and is the Executive Director of the Stanford Technology Ventures Program, which is the Entrepreneurship Center at Stanford University School of Engineering. She also teaches courses on entrepreneurship and innovation and has written several popular science books for adults and children. And you can go to any bookstore, log on to Amazon, and get the book, What I Wish I Knew When I Was 20. Welcome back, Tina. Thank you very much. Okay, we have so many pieces about what I wish I knew when I was 20. And one of the things uh, I'd like to talk about is on the rules outside of school. What do you mean? Well,
3: when you're in school, there is usually one right answer to every question, and uh, you your job is to figure out what that answer is. When you get out of school, there are an infinite number of answers to most questions. And in fact, this is true when you're even within an existing company. It, there are rarely situations where there's one answer. Nobody gives you an A at the end of the day and uh, or at the end of the year. You you know you might get some performance reviews, but you rarely are told you know that there's one answer. And uh, that's what makes life outside of school really, really different.
2: Absolutely. So when you're doing that, what what is the next step? If you were talking to a student that came up and said, like, here's my issue, how do you advise them when they come to you and they're really wondering what they're going to do with the rest of their life?
3: I am a big proponent of trying lots of things and keeping what works. Um, there is a, actually I really recommend this podcast, uh, Steve Jobs did a commencement address at Stanford in 2005 and he talked about his life and uh, it's really fascinating about how all the things he did that led up to, to starting Apple were things that seemed as though they were irrelevant. Uh, one of the things he talks about, which I think is a wonderful example, is how he ended up studying calligraphy just for fun. But the fact that he studied calligraphy and became very competent in that ended up really influencing the way the computer was designed with all the proportional mm-hmm. fonts. And we, our computers today would probably be quite different had Steve Jobs not spent the time learning, how, learning calligraphy. So nothing you do is wasted. You should follow your interests, you should meet lots of people, you should experiment, and eventually the pattern emerges. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: What do you find is the biggest challenge that students come to you with, the biggest issue they're having, Tina?
3: Well, the biggest challenge is usually that they... Time uh, or money? For uh, time or money? No, it's more the whole range of opportunities, trying to figure out where their passions lie. And, in fact, that's always a really interesting question when students come in and say they don't know what they're passionate about. These are usually students who have done all the right things and they're the students who have the top grades. These are students who have been following the rules for a long, long time and have not given themselves the time to figure out what actually comes from inside and what motivates them as opposed to you know, looking at what everyone else wants them to do.
2: Okay, so that's very important. Yeah. All right, there's another thing that you talk about um, in your book, and that's on quitting. And it's one thing to talk about failure. It's another thing to talk about quitting.
3: Yeah, it's interesting. Quitting is often an incredibly powerful uh, act. We have all been in jobs that don't work or in relationships that are doomed, and being able to quit is really important. Now, it is important to do it gracefully. Um, I have been in situations where I have seen people leave in such a way that the crater they leave behind is so big that they have burned all of their bridges. Um, but I've also seen people do it so gracefully. Um, let's say uh, you have someone who works with you who's not doing a great job or the job is not a good fit for them. If they choose to lead gracefully, making sure that there's enough time for other people to transition, uh, then ends up happening is the people left behind are happy to give them letters of reference, are happy to see them in the future because you know what? The world is very small. There are only 50 people in the world, you know, and you're going to keep bumping into the same people, and you can be assured that if you do some damage, it will probably come back to haunt you later.
2: So then let's talk about communication skills and how you need to present yourself in a positive light and how you need to keep those relationships alive Because just because of what you're saying that you never know what the future will bring, like the person that you talked about that you met. You know, just uh, at at coffee, and then three years later, you ended up in his helicopter.
3: Yeah, it's it's really true. Now, of course, being a good, nice, caring person is a good thing to do, you know, for lots of different reasons. But even if you're thinking about your own career, I have to tell you, it ends up uh, being something that's very valuable. The world is very small, and the person sitting next to you in class when you're a student is going to possibly someone that you bump into in many different roles later in your life. I think of the people who I am still in contact with in very unusual ways now who I knew in very different roles earlier in my career. It might have been someone who I worked for who now works for me or someone who I went to school with who's now my sister-in-law. You know, the relationships change and morph over time, and it's really important to keep in mind that um, no experience sits in isolation. And in fact, everybody knows everybody. So I've been in many situations where um, I'm interviewing for someone for a job and uh, I look at their resume and I can quickly see that I know many of the people they know. Hmm. I don't have to call the references that they have there. I can call the people I know and say, hey, give me a back channel information.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm
3: sure this happens to you as well.
2: Oh, well, it's so important. Now, you wrote in your first chapter, The Upside Down Circus. You talk about showing video clips from the 1939 Marx Brothers movie, At the Circus. You ask the students to uncover all the assumptions of a traditional circus, the tent, the animals, the tickets, the souvenirs. Why?
3: Well... In that chapter, I talk about how you can challenge assumptions. And that's a case study I use in my class with, on Cirque du Soleil. And we start out looking at the traditional circus. You know, the Marx Brothers at the Circus movie is a great, you know, example. We watch just, you know, five minutes of that to get the flavor. And then you uncover all the assumptions about a circus and we turn them upside down so that you can look at what would it look like a circus if you didn't have animals, if you didn't have cheap seats, you had expensive seats. What if you weren't competing with amusement parks, but you were competing with opera? And, of course, you end up coming up with something that looks like Cirque du Soleil. Mm, We then take that
2: concept of turning things upside down and apply it to other industries. I was just going to ask you that. Give another example of how we could see something one way, and turn it and see it totally different. Perfect example. Let's say you even take university education or fast food
3: or airline industry. You can take it and here it's a really fun exercise. You sit there and you unpack all the assumptions that you have about that industry. What do we assume when we think about fast food? Well, we think, assume that it's, it's fast. <laughs> we assume that it's, uh, it's Cheap food, that it's um, not healthy, that it's brightly lit, that it's designed for kids, that it's on every single street corner, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, what if we turn those upside down and pick the things we want to keep and keep, pick the things we want to change? And you end up coming up with a brand new concept of fast food that's still a fast food. Such as? That looks completely different.
2: Such as? Yeah. So... Oh, so said, together, well, because so it's, I
3: mean, it's in a classroom setting, so it, it doesn't mean that, um, you know, that that I have an example right now, but there are lots of different fast food restaurants, whether it's uh, pret a you know, places that are coming up with healthy fast food yeah. have basically taken that concept to heart.
2: Mm-hmm. Or ones that are actually have an elegance to them. Yes, exactly. Have an elegance.
3: So right. But great. you realize very quickly that there are all these assumptions that are baked in all the time to everything. And that it's our job in order to be innovative is to first uncover all the assumptions so that you can then question them.
2: Well, you know, and let's take this one step further in terms of opportunities. We'll often have an assumption. Well, for example, I might be invited to a networking meeting and or a student's invited to a club or a meeting. And they might say, or I might say, you know, I'm not sure I really want to go to that. I'm not sure the timing is right. I'm not sure I'm going to meet the right people. I don't even know if I like that topic that's being addressed tonight, so we don't go. Now, let's look at how we could change that to go and maybe meet somebody who is really can help us. Absolutely. I mean, it,
3: you know, inertia gets in the way a lot. And uh, sometimes you just got to get up and force yourself to do things, whether it's, you know, meeting someone new or getting some exercise. Um, it is, uh, you got to overcome that inertia in order to really make things happen.
2: How how uh, much does intuition play in all this, following your gut? You know, it plays a significant
3: role, but you need to also realize that you control your attitude in many different ways, right? Um, You might have a gut reaction that you're anxious or worried about things. You know, um, being risk-averse is a good example. I mean, your gut reaction might be, oh, my gosh, I don't want to do that. That's too scary. And one of the things I talk about in the book is that really you should understand your own risk profile. And people often, if you ask them, are you a risk-taker, they'll answer yes or no. But if you really uncover it, what you'll find is that there are certain types of risks that they'll be willing to take and some sort of risks that they won't. For example, there are physical risks, financial risks, emotional risks, social risks, um, so you need to think, boy. I might not be a physical risk taker, but I might be a social risk taker. You know, I'll get up and give a talk in front of a thousand people, mm-hmm. but don't ask me to jump out of an airplane. Mm-hmm. So it's really important to understand your own risk profile and decide if the places where you're not
2: comfortable taking risks, if it's something you want to change or not. Mm-hmm. Where do you? Is there uh, something online that people can take to, to assess their risk? Gosh, I don't know. In
3: fact, it's interesting because I've talked to a lot of people about this and, um, about these different risk profiles. And I've never heard anyone talk about that before, sort of uncovering the different types of risks. Um, people usually think of themselves as a risk taker or not. And, uh, in writing this book, I ended up, uh, dissecting it further and realizing that, you know, this really, there's a lot more nuance in there than, uh, one would initially imagine.
2: So there isn't uh, there isn't a place someone knows,
3: Please let me know. Step. I would be delighted to find out if there was something
2: Yeah, there. people just to although they probably probably you would know because you know if you will take a certain risk, because you know you've taken it. Exactly. Correct?
3: Exactly. I mean if I'm willing to jump out of a helicopter or a perfectly good airplane, you know. Or whether I'm willing to, you know, stand up at a party and give a toast.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So it, and and for some people, standing up at a party and giving a toast is nothing. Yes, Whereas Getting exactly. out of an airplane would be terrifying and vice versa.
3: Exactly. All
2: right. Tina, what is it that you want listeners to get out of this program? What's your message here and what I wish I knew when I was 20?
3: The overarching theme of the book is that problems are opportunities and that it's up to you to see them that way and all the ways in which you can do that, and it, it's interesting because I tell not just stories from my class and not just stories from my own life, but a lots and lots and lots of stories of people from very different careers, different walks of life, and how they have done this. So the stories are very provocative. Um, and in fact, one of the most fun things I had in writing this book was getting an opportunity to go out and just you know talk to all sorts of people and have them tell me these really fascinating stories mm-hmm. about how they turned problems into opportunities.
2: And was it in many different risk areas? Oh, oh sure. Really, emotional that, is financial everything. relationship health? Exactly.
3: Exactly. Exactly. In all different areas of their lives and certainly different careers. And one of the most important things to realize is that you there are, there's a big difference between things that are real rules and things that are suggestions. And there are lots of suggestions that our society gives to us. And you need to know when those suggestions are really rules and when they're things that really should be questioned.
2: Give me um, an example, please.
3: Okay, I'll give you an example. a... Uh, Someone I wrote about in the book is someone named Sandra Cook, who had risen up through the ranks in the corporate world and was the head of strategy for Motorola. She had a very comfortable life. You would imagine she would just keep doing that. She decided that she really loved adventure travel and was always spending her time uh, during you know two-week breaks in her schedule to go off to exotic locations. She decided she loved being engaged in the developing world and places in the world where there were challenges much more than she liked dealing with the challenges in the corporate world and so she decided to turn her world upside down quit her job um, as a head of strategy at Motorola and went off to do relief work in Afghanistan and loved it and basically she's incredibly happy she loves what she's doing she's making a huge contribution and she essentially broke the rules she looked at things her life through a very different lens and said you know what I did this now it's time to do something completely different wow
2: Oh, fascinating, Tina. All right, um, it's time to close. We're going to come back. and We're going to do another segment, but I know you have to go. And I want to tell people that your book is What I Wish I Knew When I Was 20 by Tina Selig, a crash course on making your place in the world. Tina Seelig has a Ph.D. in neuroscience from Stanford School of Medicine and is the executive director of the Stanford Technologies Venture Program, which is an entrepreneurship center at Stanford University School of Engineering. Thank you so much for being on the program. It was my pleasure. Yeah, I really appreciate it. And people can get your book at Barnes & Noble, at Amazon. Yep, anywhere books are sold. All right, stay on the line. Folks, uh, we're going to be right back. I'm going to say a few words at the end of the show, so stay right with us. You're listening to Positive Living. I'm Patricia Raskin, right here on voiceamerica.com. Stay tuned, folks. We'll be right back.
1: talk 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 that's all we do is talk if you'd like to talk call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787 1-866-472-5787 that's it that's it voiceamerica.com if you want to put the pet back in your step chad lafferty says just what you're looking for Grunt? Yeah, be like, oh, uh, oh, uh. There you go. You don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. When you adopt a child from foster care, just being there makes all the difference. To learn more, call 1-888-200-4005. A public service announcement brought to you by adopt US Kids, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and the Ad Council. Son, we gotta talk about drinking. Uh, I know. I don't want you touching alcohol till you're old enough.
4: Yeah, I, I know, Dad. It's
1: not a big deal. Don't yeah, I know me, okay? And it is a big deal. Underage drinking is just stupid. Yeah, well, why'd you do it? Look, I did it because we didn't know what we know now. Alcohol affects kids differently, okay? When kids drink, it's more dangerous. And you're my kid. And just because they drink doesn't mean you have to. I I know. I know. Look, son, I'm trying to help. I've seen what it does. I mean, you may think you can handle it, but when you drink, it screws up your judgment. Listen to me. This is real. I, I know, okay? I know. Teenagers know everything. So talk
4: about underage drinking before they know it all. Before they're teens. Start talking before they start drinking. And keep talking. To learn more about the dangers of underage drinking and what to say to your kids, go to StopAlcoholAbuse.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council.
1: The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com
2: Raskin, and we are back with Positive Living right here on VoiceAmerica.com. We have a few minutes for me just to chat with you. Um, My guest had to go, and so I'm going to chat with you and share with you about my website and what I'm doing. I've created a whole network of shows. You can log on to PatriciaRaskin.com and take a look at that. So I have several programs in several different places. I've been on Voice America now about seven years, going into my eighth. So I'm very excited about that. And we have a newsletter, so please write to me, Patricia at PatriciaRaskin.com. And I will send you a copy of the newsletter. It comes out monthly. I'm also going to start to send out a list of weekly shows. So I'd love to have you on that list, so you can know about all the celebrities and authors and incredible people that we have on Voice America. Also, um, am creating a positive living campaign for you to share your stories of kindness, random acts of kindness, um, things that you think are positive in the world, in your region, in the country, uh, in your homes, in your families. Very important. We need to keep infusing people with positive stories. Brian Williams and Channel 10 uh, got so many complaints for all the negativity that was going on about a few months ago, he put out a call for positive news. He received so many thousands of stories from so many listeners that he said he could have filled three networks. So our time is now. Positive is here. It's here to stay. And turning our, turning our obstacles into opportunities and our problems into solutions is certainly the way to go. And, again, I would love to hear from you just log on to Patricia at PatriciaRaskin.com and I can answer your questions. And if you'd like to participate in any of my programs, please do let me know. I would love to have you. And each week we bring you guests who will inspire you and enlighten you and really show you that you can turn your obstacle into an opportunity and you can turn your problem into a solution. So stay with us. Stay with us every week um, right here on voiceamerica.com. And, you know, as I always say when I'm ready to close this program, stay healthy, stay happy, get the support that you really need, and know that you can make your dreams come true. Until next week on Positive Living right here on voiceamerica.com, I'm Patricia Raskin. Again, write to me, Patricia, at PatriciaRaskin.com. Have a great Monday and a great week. Bye until then.